All right. Thank you. So kindergarten through seconds. Y'all follow Miss Robin out the back. And I will invite the rest of you that are in here with us. If you want to get out your Bible, if you brought one with you and turn it to Nehemiah chapter 1. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Chapter 1, is that right? Yes. Okay, good. Sorry, good, Nehemiah good. 1. You're good. You're good. <laughs> that felt weird. Try um, along. <laughs> I like this. Uh, today's a bit of a new day, a different day for us, because Jason and I are both going to be on stage together. And uh, if, if you're new to our church or you don't know much about us, um, we do everything as a team. Um, so uh, there's not one like senior lead pastor. Jason and I share that duty. We've got other elders as well that help lead and shepherd um, our church. And so um, it just made sense that when it came to uh, kind of sharing our heart and vision for this next season that we would do that together. So you're going to hear probably four different, hopefully smaller sermons today. At least it might feel like that. Uh, just bear with us. I really feel like God has something to share with all of us. Um, Ten years ago today, ten years ago today, we had our first launch team, official launch team meeting over at the, in the cafeteria or library of the BIC, and um, we kind of cast some vision for what we might be, what we could be if we put our minds together, hearts together, sweated together, bled together, um, what God might do through a new church. And um, we always look at this time in the summer. We officially celebrate our anniversary in January when we officially launched the church. But we started gathering 10 years ago today. And um, we're going to talk about that some today. We're going to talk about some tonight. Um, if you've been with us for any amount of time, whether you've been six months or the full 10 years, um, we want to know from you what are some of the most memorable moments, if there's one or two that stand out, whether serious or funny, that stand out across our 10 years. Um, Jason and I were talking about that this week and laughing um, about some of the funny ones and thanking God for some of the serious ones, what God has done through um, this faith family. So if you would uh, email Jason, that Jason at the Covenant Church, um, we're going to share some of those tonight on our, um, on our Zoom call. Uh, last week uh, on the way home, Hudson, my, uh, my little man, um, said dad in a very serious voice and I thought okay I'm thinking this might be a God moment because after church the other kids we've experienced this like this with them um, dad since corona your sermons have gotten so long <laughs> did he say and he's used to like leaving after the singing right so he I guess I don't know what he thought we did in here afterwards your sermons have gotten so long I thought about everything. I was like, well, we were a little bit longer. And he said, no, really long. Um, and it's felt a little bit like that. I think since Corona, everything has felt a little bit long. It's just taken forever to get anything done. Um, and as we've started coming back to meet in uh, June, uh, the last Sunday of May, we started back. Um, I have felt like there's this little bit of a mission drift I think it's a combination of summertime, it's uh, things always feel a little bit off during the summer, of course there's a pandemic, 
Um, it's gotten all of us out of sorts on some level. It's a political season as well, and that's just always divisive. But it seems even more in this season, many of our friends are sick uh, with COVID. Many have, have lost jobs, might lose their jobs. Some of them that have jobs are much harder than they used to be. I think about the teachers and principals and support staff going back to school. We're going to have a prayer for you next week um, during our uh, Sunday morning gathering. But their jobs are going to be a little more difficult, a lot more complicated. Um, We see that there's a paradigm shift in history as racial tensions and social injustice have risen to the surface, things that have existed for a long time now are kind of in the forefront. And I think all of that mixed together have made, maybe not just our church, but I felt it in our church, this sense of like mission drift. Certainly has felt like, you know, that you're in a funk. You know that feeling when things just don't feel right, things feel a little, man, something is off. And I thought it was just me. And then Ashley and I started to talk about it. And she's like, oh, I feel that for sure. And then more of our friends we talked with said, man, I feel that. It just feels like a little bit of a, a funk going on. Like when, when I was in high school, me and a buddy, um, uh, we went to, uh, to Caddo Lake and we took out, um, you know, just a little John boat with a little, little motor, went out fishing. And we went out to, you know, the, the, the fishing hole where everything was biting and we get out there and then the, the, the motor on the boat won't crank back up. And we pull and pull and pull and can't get it cranked back up. And we're, I don't know, a mile or two from where we started. And so then we had to use the trolling motor. Have you ever had to do this? The trolling motor and a couple paddles to get all the way back. And we're fighting against waves and other boats. And it just felt like we couldn't make any progress forward because we didn't have enough power. And I, in a sense, I've kind of felt like, in a way, the church has felt like that. We're making some momentum. We are moving forward, but it just seems like not, not like we want to. Everything around us seems to be pushing us out a bit. So as Jason and I begin to pray through this, um, we took a couple days away from the office and went downtown and uh, just started with a couple whiteboards and said, okay, God, what, what would you have for, this, this, for us this next season? How do we... How do we redirect and realign our heart with your heart and as I was praying through this how do we share this and we're going to share some this morning and Jason's going to share some in a minute we're going to share some tonight through zoom if you call covenant home I just implore you um, to log on tonight onto the zoom link and kind of hear a little how this plays out but I kept going back to Nehemiah if you've got Nehemiah um, chapter one And we're going to blow through this. As a matter of fact, we spent almost two years in Nehemiah as a church. We were were building that wall for a long, long time. Um, We had a a guy that was attending who wasn't a believer, but he was committed to coming. And about like the eighth week in Nehemiah, he he came up after service. He's like, yeah, pastor, thank you for your sermon. How long is it going to take Nehemiah to build that blank wall? <laughs> I was like, well, we're going to keep going after it, man. <laughs> Nehemiah, a uh, cupbearer to the king, he's living in um, exile, captivity. 
And he had some friends come to visit him. In verse 3, we'll jump in. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah gets a bad report. In verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open and hear the prayer of your servant. Verse 7. Really, end of verse 6. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen and make my name dwell there. He ends by telling us he was the cupbearer to the king. And I just want to pull out a few things that just have uh, just aligned with my heart for our church in this season from this passage. How Nehemiah, how his heart was moved and changed. And the first thing we see that Nehemiah did was listen. It all starts with listening. He says in in verse 4, when I heard these words... News of the condition of the city of Jerusalem. The city walls had been torn down for 150 years. Why all of a sudden? Nehemiah knew the state. He knew where things were. They weren't getting better. Why all of a sudden did Nehemiah's heart all of a sudden change for the city? He was, he was very prominent in exile serving the king. He had a good job. He had a good career. He had a good standing and favor with the king. Why all of a sudden did his heart become so burdened? Weeping and mourning, he says. This is not the kind of tear you shed at a sad movie. This is real mourning. It lasted for three months. Why the burden now? And I think I know why. I don't believe Nehemiah got any new information, but I do believe that he received the same information he'd always known, but it was accompanied with a new perspective. The Holy Spirit opened Nehemiah's heart to have the heart of Jesus. To have the heart of Jesus for that city, just as Jesus would later weep over Jerusalem. Here Nehemiah is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus' heart has been given to Nehemiah through through the Spirit. He starts with listening. I pray that that would be our first posture, that we would really listen to the Lord. And as I've had conversations with some of you in the past few months, I pray that that's your posture. Not just frustration and being upset, but... A real posture of listening, listening to the Lord. And then he moves into praying. That's the second thing. He says he began praying. As soon as I heard the words, I sat on a weapon, mourned for days, and I continued praying and fasting before the God of heaven. He prays and he repents. The end of verse 6. He goes through this process of repenting, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned against you. It's just repentance, not just for the works that he had done, not just for the sins that he committed, but just the spirit of apathy apathy that was in his own heart. He spent time repenting. 
And then waiting. He waits for days, it says in the passage of verse 4, wept and mourned for days. By the start of chapter 2, we see it's April now. It's been four months, this period of waiting. Waiting on God's timing. Might be a helpful reminder to all of us to wait on the Lord. This idea of waiting is not much, as much a picture of you just sitting at a bus stop and force gump kind of way, but it's the picture of a good server. You know, have you ever been to one of those fancy restaurants where you've got a server, a really good server that might just have two tables and, I mean, you can't take a sip of your drink before they're, you know, refilling it. That's this, this idea of waiting on the Lord, that we are in a posture of attentiveness and a posture of patience. God, you, you tell us what's going on. Let us wait on you. The psalmist would talk about this waiting. I, can I be honest with you? I hate waiting. I literally, I just cannot stand waiting. I don't like, I, I waited 12 minutes in the Starbucks line this morning and was just, you know, fighting the flesh the whole time. Like, much less can you think about months or years of waiting. When God really spoke to my heart about planting this church. It was seven years after that that we actually moved here. And God is speaking into my heart even now things that are going to happen in the future. And if I'm not careful, and maybe this is a place of repentance for me before you, I get so far ahead and wondering where we're going to be in 18 months and 24 months and three years and 10 years. We've already started talking about our 10-year anniversary in January. We're going to call it the next 10 But the issue with that is I'm already thinking, you know, what does it look like 10 years more down the road? And sometimes we go so far ahead of God and our thinking and praying and dreaming that we miss what he's doing right here. This idea of waiting, the psalmist would say, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. If we had time, we'd go into some of these other things. Next is the planning. He goes into the king, and he's sad, and the king says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? And he answers, you know, the the city in which my ancestors are from, which likely Nehemiah had never even been to. Uh, The walls are broken down. And the king says, okay, what do you need? How much time do you need off to go do it? And he had a number, 12 years, he says. He knew, well, what else do you need? He knew how many logs he needed. He had spent some time planning. So there's this, there's this listening and this praying and this repenting and this waiting. But you're not waiting just, you know, sitting on your, on your hands. No, you're waiting with this posture for what God might do. And you're planning. And then resting. In verse 11, he says he finally gets to Jerusalem of chapter 2. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. All this planning up to this place. He shows up ready to do the work and he takes time off to keep the Sabbath, to physically rest. I've been reading a book called Take Your Life Back. And in the book he mentions this secular sociologist who came up with this idea of Dunbar's number. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but he studies, you know, he studies societies. And he, this is not even a believer He came up with this number. This is what he says in the book, that we have a village-sized soul. 
that we can only really handle the difficulty, the pain, the celebration of about 120 people. And because we have news so readily accessible, because we're always getting news about what's happening in Syria, other parts of the world, and it makes our heart ache, and it should, and we're reading the numbers of coronavirus cases every day, and this is what's happening, all this news from all these places, our, our souls just like get numb, we get empathy fatigue. And when we're fatigued, we, we don't know how to act or respond even to the people who are closest to us. Nehemiah took some time to rest. He then evaluated the path ahead in verse 17. He's just so honest with the people about the difficulty. <laughs> he just basically, hey, we're in bad shape. Our city's broken. Our gates are burned. We are a reproach. And that is, I, can I be honest with you? I love people who talk, who just, who just tell it like it is. Even the people who are a little bit abrasive. It's, it's okay with me. I'd rather do that. Let's cut to the point. Let's just say exactly where we're at Instead of all this like, you know, let's avoid telling the truth. He did that and then vision casting. Look at it in verse 18 with me. He says in verse 17, this is his evaluation. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Told them the hand of my God had been upon me. He says there at the end of verse 18, let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. This idea of casting vision. Look back at verse 12 too. There's this little phrase in verse 12 that I can't, I can't get past. He says, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. This is what vision is. It's this burning in our heart for something. Just as I had this vision burning in my heart for this church that we would go and we would sacrifice and blaze a trail ahead, God's given you a vision. Any of us that walk with God, we have a vision because as we get close to God's heart, Our desires become his desires, and he brings us in and then pushes us out. That's just what he does. and He pushes us out with a passion that's aligned with his heart for something that's broken in the world. Some of you in here, you've got a gift of evangelism, and you just evangelize. You share the gospel. It just comes pretty naturally to you, and that's an incredible thing. That's, That's your burden, the lostness, and we all should have a burden for the lostness of the world. And some of you, you're serving at the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and some of you with foster families. God gives us a vision that burns in our hearts. Proverbs warns us in chapter 29, verse 18, where there is no vision or no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. We start going in our own way. So if we're going to sum up our vision as covenant in this next season... I'm going to hand it over to Jason to talk. It's, it's not a new vision. It's just returning to the other one. When I stood in front of some of you who were here 10 years ago, we had three pictures. We want to be a family. We want to be a team. We want to be a rescue ship. A family, a team, and a rescue ship. Jason, why don't you talk about some of sure. those? Sure. Um, as you think about this idea of family, 
we've used that word. It's a biblical word that we are the family of God. We've used that word, I mean, for 10 years now. And it's a good word, but I will say it can be a confusing word too because we all have different views of family, don't we? Some from broken families or just really bad families or sometimes you have a sense of almost no family. And so this word can be helped, but also can be confusing and sometimes maybe even hurtful. And so to give us some perspective on what it means for for us to be family. Um, Luke uh, brought me to the office uh, the other day, this passage from Romans 16. If you want to turn there, go ahead and turn to Romans 16 now, please. And while you're doing that, I'm going to tell you my favorite covenant moment. Um, it was a little less than 10 years ago. I walked into the uh, little kids area at the BIC, and there was this young woman who was putting together a tent for our kids ministry and a few days later, got a little thing called Facebook Messenger, and I popped her up on there, got the phone number, dated, and got married like four months later. And so that's my favorite moment of this church. And so I love you, and um, yeah, it has been um, the greatest joy of my life to be with you guys the past 10 years. It truly has. Um, in a lot of ways, this church has grown me up. In a lot of ways, we have... Uh, seen lots of things happen together. And as I came back from my study break and me and Luke sat down, um, just as you know, probably, I am just a harmonious person. I just want there to be peace at all times. I have vivid memories when I was a kid of my parents fighting and me trying to get them to stop fighting. Like I remember that vividly because I'm just a harmonious person. But when I came back, I felt this sense of tension and a sense across the church. And it speaks right now at this point of family where it is hard for us to read the words of Jesus about the way we love each other, about the way we are one together and unified, the body of Christ. And then sometimes for us to reckon with the actual local church. But this passage in Romans 16 is this beautiful passage of what family and the local body can and should look like. The Apostle Paul, the greatest church planter ever, is leaving to go do new works. And as he leaves, he has this kind of just list of people that he sends these greetings to. And we can't cover the whole passage, but I want to draw attention to just kind of five people here. Verse 1, you see this. He says, I commend you to our sister... Not to my friend, not to that person, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at that word, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Look at verse two, I mean verse three, excuse me. Greet Pro Prissa, Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks. I love Paul's words here. Who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Look at verse 8. Greet Amplitius. That's probably not right. My beloved, my beloved in the Lord. Look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Look at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. But then look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, 
Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So you see really two things in this passage about how the family of God should function. The first is right here. What you see is just great affection. Paul's words are oozing with affection. The way he knows them, the way he speaks of them, the way he loves them. It is this picture of this community who doesn't just put up with each other, right? Like, well, you know, that crazy person, they do this, they say this. No, it's this community of affection and love. But also, Paul is adamant about unity. He is adamant about unity. So yes, there's great affection. But in the same breath, in the same little greeting here, he is saying, watch out that our unity does not go away. Watch out for people who might cause things to not be unified. So two great markers of the family of God are affection and unity. And all this is all Paul is doing, and all this is showing us a picture of what Jesus talked about in John 17, correct? In his high priestly prayers, he's about to go to the cross, what does he pray? He prays two things, that the church, the people of God, the family of God would be one as God the Father and God the Son are one. He prayed for unity, unbreaking, supernatural, covenantal unity. But also, he prayed that we, we, all of us, not just the ones we agree with, not just the ones that we like, but all of us would love each other so that the world could see a picture of God's love. And we see it happening here in Romans 16, this great picture of affection and unity. But here's the tension, right? Whenever we open God's word, It's this mirror. It's this mirror to us as an individual, but also this collective mirror to us, the church. And the mirror is asking us this right now. Are we, are we, not the church down the road, not the global church, we have to reckon with ourselves today. Are we living with true affection and true unity? It's an affection, it's a unity that's built on one thing. The cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, hear me. We live in a world of echo chambers and groups and we all think the same. The greatest, most unifying, most loving act in the history of the world is the cross and an empty tomb. And because of those two things, I can call another brother who thinks completely differently than me a brother in Christ because of the cross. Because we had no hope and now we have a great hope. Amen? So we are a family. The question is, how do we grow in this? And we know the ultimate way is union with Christ. But let's for a moment just say that we agree with that. If we agree that we're all unified in Christ, we have union with him that leads to us being unified. How do we functionally take a step and grow in this? Here's my encouragement. We must move. We must shift from shallow to personal. We must shift from shallow to personal. Church, hear this. 
in our, in our body today, we don't need deeper sermons. We need deeper relationships. We don't need deeper sermons. We need deeper relationships. And here's where I would just, I'll just share this with you. Um, for me, um, I have devolted, I think, to a shallow way sometimes of pastoring. Here's what I mean. Instead of calling you, having coffee with you, I, I, I might send a group text or a group email saying, think about this. Instead of staying shallow, we must move personal. And that's not just the pastor. That's us as the body of Christ. Because here's the issue. We are being discipled by a shallow world. Hear this. We, our minds, as Paul says, are being renewed by a shallow world. And we have to put off the shallow and move towards the deep, towards the personal. And here's what I mean. Shallow is sending someone maybe a text. Shallow is social media. Let me say that again. Shallow is social media. Here is what is personal. And it is how Jesus and the church has always done ministry. And it's how we stay unified and affectionate. It's the table. Church, it's the table. It's the table. Listen, Luke can scream and have long sermons all day long, right, Hudson? We can do that all day long. But until we, the body of Christ, we go and meet our enemy at the table, nothing is going to change. The beauty of Jesus is that he brought the zealot and the tax collector together at the table and did life with them and had them see a common purpose, the purpose of the way of Jesus. But friends, that's going to happen at your dinner table. So here's the challenge for us to church. That person who you know that you disagree with, the person who keeps you from stepping further into Christ, further into community as one body, that person needs to be at your dinner table. What a fun sermon today, isn't it? Because here is the thing. The person, and there are times that someone steps out of bounds and has to be removed from community because of devices. I'm not saying that's not true. But most times, we have to just show grace. Because here's the truth, friends. We have nothing to stand on except for the work of Jesus. We have nothing good except for his work, correct? So how can we really show judgment? All right, so that's kind of how we're family. But I will say this, another thing that helps us become unified and affectionate is when we have a common purpose. When we do something together, like being on a sports team growing up, this was the greatest picture of this. I play with guys totally different than me. I was always like the quiet little Christian boy who never cussed. So I got to public school and high school, and I played basketball. My little innocent mind was just shocked and forever changed. Hearing the words I heard, but here's the truth. Once we went through like a training camp and we practiced and we sweated and we won games and lost games, those men, there was a bond there because we did something together. So we're not just a family, we're also a team, correct? We have a job to do together. Now go back and look at, look at chapter 16. We might have missed this. In this passage, yes, there's great affection, but Paul also lists list out what they do. Phoebe, a servant of the church. She was a patron of everybody, correct? Rufus's mom took care of Paul. 
Aquila was a fellow worker in Christ Jesus. All throughout this passage, yes, Paul showed great affection, but he also showed this, that we all have a role to play. In the body of Christ, no one sits out because here's the newsflash. You're all part of the body. Listen, if my foot sits the game out, I'm in trouble, correct? We all have a role to play. They had great purpose with each other, other, and it led to them leaning in with this great purpose. But here's how most of us kind of look at the church or how we've been kind of trained in the West. So um, I just watched the the Last Dance documentary a few months ago with Michael Jordan. Um, Pretty good player. But there's this great story about Michael Jordan. He was the best player in the league for like five, six years, but he never won anything until a coach, Phil Jackson, came in and he taught him, listen, Mike, you're the best player in the game, maybe the best of all time. But until you learn to share the basketball and pass to your teammates, to people like me, and allow them and rest in them to do their job, you're never going to win anything. And there's this great story, Michael Jordan's first finals against the L.A. Lakers. It's like game three or four or five, something like that. And they're down, and Michael is just shooting and shooting and shooting. And Phil steps back as coach says, Michael, look at your teammates. They are wide open. And finally, Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time, decided to pass to his teammates. And he won his first championship. And through that lesson, he won five more championships. But here is the issue. The church in the West treats people like Luke and myself like Michael Jordan. Like, here's the ball, score all the buckets. And friends, here's a confession today. Me and Luke are not Michael Jordan. We're we're not. We're not in John Stockton. We're just here. And so here's the truth. That's a deep cut for my NBA fans right there. Um, Is that we need the entire body of Christ to be the body. We need to be a team. Everyone in the family has a role. We must, and here's the shift we must take. We must go from being efficient, just getting the job done, to being effective. Listen, I will tell you, as far as a business model, it is much more efficient for us to preach really good sermons, us to have really good music, and for you to show up and just give us money. That is an efficient business model that we could probably do the rest of our lives. I could retire, live this nice life. But here's the truth. That might be efficient for cultural Christianity, but it's not effective for the kingdom of God. Listen, we have a great staff now. Over the past few years, we've seen this staff rise up. And it's been such a blessing in my heart to see these leaders lead out in their gifts. But here's the possibility that we could drift into. Because we have a great staff and we have some great volunteers who like to carry a lot of the weight, that the majority of our church could just sit back and enjoy some really good Christian goods. Could come, be encouraged, be filled up, and then go out and live their lives. That could be an efficient way to do ministry, but it's not effective. And here is why when we started the church, and this is true today, but this has been the culture of us since we started this idea of team. It was like all hands on deck. You ever get somewhere and like, oh, this job is way too much. We all have to, to pitch in to do this. That's how it felt really in those early days of the church. But here's why, why team is so important. Because that team, that team 
who just every Sunday was setting up and tearing down in terrible conditions, who was loving and teaching kids when there was way too many kids, who, was, who had people in their homes to love them, provide community, and begin to disciple them in that kind of effective way of doing ministry. Here's what happened. We have a church. We have this people. We have this body. We have this culture that can literally be light in the midst of darkness, that God can use to do amazing things. Because of this culture, because of this church, my daughter's not in China anymore. Like, the, the, the work of the team, friends, is so important. It's through these unseen, setting screens for ministry kind of effort that these big things happen. We had this VBS Kids Camp a few weeks ago, and I know a lot of you were here at night and were tired and all these things. We have kids coming to faith because you showed up at 5 o'clock and you set up something. Does that make sense? That these little, little things that we don't see as big things, these little teamwork activities, lead to really big kingdom impact moments. Hear this. You are needed. You are needed to do great kingdom work. And God has gifted you. The Holy Spirit has empowered you to do, only, to do things that only you can do. But the, here's part of the issue is I think some of us have not been trained in that way. We have to be trained to be a part of a team. Think about any sport you have. You have a training camp where you start. That's the first thing you do. You come learn the basics of being a part of a team. And so part of our issue is a discipleship issue is that we've never been trained or apprenticed in the way of Jesus. And so, you know, kind of a a little thing for tonight, we're going to encourage all of us to be a part of some kind of discipleship relationship where someone in our life is helping us walk with God and helping us see how God wants to use us. But listen, when we live as a family and we function as a team, Luke's going to talk through how then we can finally truly get to some good kingdom work. It's amazing um, just how much gratitude wells up in my heart when I think about how much effort has been put into um, expanding the kingdom of God in Shreveport Bossier and how God uses us in spite of our failures, in spite of even our sin. And he gives us a place at the table that he equips us with these spiritual gifts And he says, listen, you're going to be built up together as every part does um, its work. This last picture is this picture of a rescue ship. And if you were here in the beginning, this was just part of our verbiage. And I think it has slipped out a little bit. Since we've become less feeling like a church plant and more feeling like an established church, we we kind of just lost the edge, this rescue ship edge. It was just part of our vernacular. So, you know, it used to anybody that would, uh, you know, want any kind of comfort, you know, someone would remind them, hey, this ain't, this ain't a cruise ship, bro. This is a rescue ship. And, and that's, what, that's our terminology. You know, a cruise ship exists to bring you pleasure, right? And if, if the waves are choppy, uh, you're complaining and want a refund, right? If, um, if they're not reaching the destination on time, if... If things aren't just, you know, picture perfect, then you're like, man, I'm never taking one of these cruises again because a cruise is all about you. 
but a rescue ship. These Coast Guard ships that they send out, it has nothing to do with those soldiers on board, the seamen on board. It has nothing to do with them. They're, they're out to provide rescue. That's why. So when, it, when the boat turns into choppy water, they're like, well, of course, this is why I'm here, right? It's this rescue ship mentality. And this was the rescue ship mentality that Jesus had. And we could talk about three dozen different passages where Jesus made this so clear and Paul made this so clear and Peter in his letters made this so clear and James in the book we just finished made this so clear. Just a few of them, this idea of rescue ship. In Luke 5, Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy people. I came for those who are sick. I didn't come for the people who are found. I came for the people who are lost. In Mark 3, He says he called his disciples so that they may be with him in verse 14 and that he might send them out. This picture of a rescue ship. In Matthew 28, right, the great commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And even then, the disciples didn't get it. It wasn't until persecution came and literally split them up that the vision and mission of Jesus began to be accomplished. In John 20, Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me on this great rescue mission, so I am sending you. In Matthew 9, 35, Jesus filled with compassion as he looked over Jerusalem as sheep without a shepherd. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the rescuers, are few. I love the Phillips translation of that verse too. This says, so pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up and thrust forward rescuers. That's the picture of a rescue ship. I I grew up in church. My dad was a church planter and his ministry transitioned and had taken over some small Baptist churches. Um... That had, some, that had a lot of issues. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever been to a small Baptist church that didn't have a lot of issues. I don't know if I ever heard of a church that didn't have a lot of issues, right? <laughs> you get a bunch of sinners together and the issues just kind of come out, right? But I remember these business meetings where these people would like be irate about, you know, the hue of the bulb that we're going to use in the sanctuary or the color of the carpets or whether we're going to put pins in the back of the pews or what version of the hymn book or if we're King James only people, or I can't believe we sang a Bill Gaither song today, you know, <laughs> much less to the worship wars that came with the drums. Maybe you remember that, like how, how dare they put drums on the stage. That's all cruise ship talk, all cruise ship. You ask someone how the cruise was, they're going to tell you, man, our room was so nice, or it was, our room wasn't that good, man. It stunk, it had a little TV, wasn't even LCD right? The food, man, was stale. That's cruise ship talk. You know what rescue ship talk is? Hey, how'd it go today? Man, we saved someone. God sent us into the storm with the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring salvation. Let me be as honest as I can. It's just not in my skill set to grow a church from 200 to 400 it is not in my skill set to lead big building campaigns. It's not in my, I don't, I just have no desire to do any of that. But if we're talking about a rescue ship, 
man, that's what keeps me up at night. Thinking about God, who are you sending us to? And that's the call, friends. That we'd be a family, a team, and a rescue ship. And that hasn't changed in 10 years. I think some of us have adopted more of a cruise ship model. But we got to get rid of that. We'll have cruise ship when we get to heaven. <laughs> right? All the gold, uh, the, the pearly gates. No sin, no tears, no pain. A lot of us want glory now, but glory doesn't come now. The cross comes now. That's right. And glory comes later. We have to adjust our priorities in that. I'm going to pray for us, and then Jason's going to lead us into communion. God, thank you for just the gift of your grace. Lord, we got people watching at home and many in the room with us here. The Holy Spirit, you lead us very specifically. So I pray even right now that you would provide conviction where there's sin that's present. Maybe it's just the sin of apathy that we've just kind of been lulled to sleep. The, the pandemic has kind of revealed to us that our roots do not go deep. Even as Cassie talked about last week, just that phrase that we were built for the desert. Oh my goodness. Or maybe we've had this expectation of comfort and convenience, of glory now. We've missed, we've missed the point. You've called us to take up our cross daily and to follow you. Cross now. Unless a seed dies and it's buried, it can't be useful. God, do something in our hearts where we could strategize all we wanted and whiteboards all over this gymnasium. But if we miss you, where you're leading, where you're calling, we've missed everything. Lord, give us a passion. Give us a heart that beats for the things that your heart beats for. We'll give you all the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name.